finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things, and we talk about them. And for this episode, we read Beneath the Wheel by Herman Hesse. Hesse? One of those two. It's two syllables. It's not Hess. See, that's how I had heard it pronounced back in, when I was in high school, and that's how I pronounced his name. But yes, I see that it is Hesse. Hesse? I went on Wikipedia and listened to the pronunciation, processed that it was two syllables, and then forgot how to actually say it immediately. It's making me think of like Hefe, like Herman Hess is the boss. <laughs> So maybe that's how I'll remember how to say it properly, but I might slip back into my American twang and just call him Herman Hess. The problem with that is all of his books are about, very much about how he is not the boss, and he doesn't like having a boss, and it causes him a lot of distress. I feel like before we get into talking about this book as a mom and a librarian, I think we should have a trigger warning or maybe a warning that there's sensitive subject matter in this book. Sure. There's lots of, there's discussion of mental illness. There's discussion of suicide. Bullying. There's bullying. Academic pressuring. Yeah. It's a. And it's very sad. I mean, it deals a lot with like your emotional state at the time. Mm -hmm. That's, it's, I think it's useful in certain contexts to just. Have a sad warning, especially <laughs> now. Like, hey, heads up! This, this is gonna, this is gonna be sad. Yeah. So prepare yourself emotionally for that. But to that aside, I have to say that Herman Hesse or Hess or any other pronunciation is one of my favorite writers. He's a German Swiss writer from the early 1900s, mm-hmm. and he's kind of really known for this sort of. German philosophical take on writing. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the idea of like, uh, what is the term? Angst und, what's the other part of that? I don't know. But if it means fear and trembling, it's like, you know, like an existential thing. I tend to think of his uh, work at having a lot of that, especially Beneath the Wheel might have the most of it. Yeah, I think so. And I kind of like, I've read his books when I was in high school, which is when, a time when a lot of people pick up his works because mm. his work is about like the feelings that develop in like young adulthood about like your parents and school and your social pressures and friendship. So I think like a lot of people start to, they get this sort of intellectual awakening when they enter high school and they start reading advanced novels and they start reading for themselves like for entertainment and i feel like a lot of people go through a phase where this sort of german intellectual philosophical writing appeals to them they're in sort of like this emotional turmoil of late teen age and i think it really speaks to like what's going on in their lives yeah and if, if anyone hasn't heard of herman Hesse or has never really looked into him i know what you're thinking right German writer in the, you know, 20th century. He was out of Germany by the time the Nazis rose to power. He did not get up to any Nazi shit or any Nazi collaborating or sympathizing. 
if that was a, I because I feel like anytime you get into a a figure from history who is German and was potentially alive during World War II, there's always this fear of like, well, what was he doing? And the, the answer is he was not in Germany and was actually helping get works published by authors that had been branded as subversives by the Nazis. I also think that he, because he had dual citizenship of Germany and Switzerland, mm-hmm. he was able to leave the country, but he was also able to assist other writers, either who wanted to leave the country or who needed assistance, like you said. Yeah, he... So, in World War One. I, I don't know how much... Do you have any notes on, like, back his uh, backstory and stuff? Because I can just go through... Oh, you printed out the Wikipedia article. <laughs> That's because well, I'm... I'm just going to go off of what I... Tell, tell, go off of what I know, and if you... Which is that he... When World War One broke out, I think this is really interesting. He had this... The way he puts it is that, like, he saw other younger writers going off to war. And felt like essentially like a hypocrite. So he enlisted in World War One, and was put to work in an administrative capacity at a prisoner of war camp. Which he found to be horrific. And he wrote an essay denouncing nationalism and militarism. Which it for which in a, a you know circumstance that would be reflected later in you know, America and the buildup to stuff like the Iraq War, that made him, like, persona non grata in public life. I mean, in a way, Herman Hesse is the Dixie Chicks of his time. Mm-hmm. First of all, Herman Hesse, Hess, Herman, let's just call him Herman, yeah, Herman. was a very bookish intellectual writer. Yeah. He had a career in, as a book salesman. He worked in rare books and manuscripts. And he was very thoughtful and very introverted. And I think even though he doesn't really claim it, he, in a lot of ways, was a pacifist. Mm -hmm. And I think that shows up in his writings, especially the ones that sort of deal closer to the sort of themes of war and nationalism. I don't think he was really particularly vocal, but I did, I mean, other than, you know, writing about it and, and having that belief, he wasn't sort of... Um, an agitator. He wasn't outspoken. He spoke his mind and he wrote his piece on it and he did what he thought was best during the war, but he wasn't a resistor or any kind of political... But I think he did speak up and speak out against this nationalistic fervor around World War One, and it got him ostracized. Well, I think... Yes. I I think it's really interesting that he saw... Like, we get sold this narrative, and, like, you go to your history class in high school, at least in America, and you get sold this narrative where it's, like, the Nazis happened because the tr- post-World War One treaties were really unfair to Germany, is, like, the, the, the predominant narrative, we're told. But if you look at the stuff that he was talking about, and you look at World War One, it's, like, the Nazis were an inevitability. Well, like, that, yeah. that's the natural outcome of what they were doing in the build-up to World War One. And this, like, proto-fascist nationalist forever, which you we've kind of seen this play out in modern American history. Like, from George Bush to Donald Trump. 
Well, I think that's true. And I, I think that's what he's pointing out. But also a major issue that Hesse keeps going back to in literally every single one of his books is this concept of a bully. And in, yeah. in his writing, a bully could be one person bullying another person. It could be an institution, like an academic institution, bullying billy, bullying a student. It can be the people in charge of a country bullying the people that live in the country. So for him, the concept of bullying can be like on a micro scale or a macro scale. And I think that's when he talks about nationalism. He's talking about this type of bullying that's happening on a national scale. Yeah. I think that that's true. What is your favorite book that he has written? Uh, Beneath the Wheel, this one. Beneath is my the favorite. Wheel? I, I, he's also one of my favorite writers. And I love all, pretty much everything he's written, at least that I've read. And like I like Steppenwolf and I like Siddhartha a lot. But Beneath the Wheel was the first one I read. And we'll talk about it throughout the episode. But I don't think there is a piece of art... In all of human history that I have experienced, that I have connected with as deeply as Beneath the Wheel. I don't think it's a perfect novel, by any means. But, like, it is the most, like, pure and accurate to an almost uncomfortable level reflection of my lived experience that, like, I've ever encountered. Well, I think a lot of people can say that they there's something about his writing that speaks directly to what they've experienced. Everyone has experienced an episode in their life that is depicted in a, in one of his novels. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a very... I think he is a very, like, internally focused writer. I mean, as much as we've talked about, like, this idea that he, he sort of presents where the, like, bullying on a, the micro scale reflects the sort of cruelty on a macro scale... But I think he's very much interested in exploring his own internal processes, his own internal perceptions of the world. But I think because he does that in such a thoughtful way, it sort of extends from the specific into the universal. I think one of the things that I like the most about his work is that he forces the reader to examine themselves, which yeah. sort of makes it more... Of an experience than just say, sort of like reading a John Grisham novel and being entertained. You're kind of, it's like a mom thing. It's it's tricking you into reading something and you're learning something and you're learning about yourself. Yeah. And I feel like pe you feel richer after reading his works. Mm -hmm. And I like, I read the, his works, like I said, when I was in high school, it was like the mid 80s. And it was a whole like time when people were like sort of examining their like the self-examining of your life was like a huge thing in the 80s like everyone was like i want to think about myself and how i can be better and how i can make more money or have more things and this is sort of the anti kind of philosophy of that it's like how can you live your life and become a better person by examining the things that make you feel good and the things that make you feel bad well i also think a lot of this book is about just not knowing. Just you don't know. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't know what's going to make you happy. Well, I mean, that's exactly how you feel when you're in your late teens or early 20s. Yeah. I mean, my take on the on Beneath the Wheel is that it's like, you know, it's a lot of it is about alienation under capitalism. 
Of course. But I think that, I think what, when we decided to do this, I mean, you had made a joke about like, this is the perfect back to school well, yeah. book because we're doing this and it'll be It'll still be our first December episode. September. September. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't work now because people are not going back to school. Hopefully not going back to school, well, at least physically. But I think what this is, is a kind of a way to say a lot of people, a lot of people think about his writing and they like, I don't understand that. That's too high. That's too philosophical, too high concept. It's kind of like, it's not metafiction, but it's kind of lumped in that sort of intellectual writing that's unapproachable. But what I wanted to do when we decided to do this beneath the wheel is to say like, this is a book that a lot of people can relate to. It's easy to read and easy to understand. The problem doesn't come from the writing. The problem comes from how it makes you feel. Yeah. And you may have an adverse reaction to this book, but it might not be because you can't read it and understand it. It's because you read it and you understood it and it really touched a nerve emotionally. And that's where people have a difficult time with his writing. As a counterpoint, though, I think that, like, for some people... The difficulty I, with this, I, I mean, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really know that this had this and his writing in general had a reputation as being difficult. But I think if this does present, if beneath the wheel specifically does present a difficulty for people, it's kind of because it's got the same. I don't want to say problem, but a good comparison would be something like uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I think that these are works are very similar in a way. And I think part of it is like, if you can't get in, I identify very strongly with the protagonists of both of those works with Hans Giebenrath and Shinji Ikari. But if you can't, if, if there's like, if it's just blocked and all you can get is like, I don't get this dude. Why is he so whiny? then you're not really going to get anything out of the work and it's going to become frustrating. And I think a lot of people, when they encounter something like Ava, it feels antagonistic because the protagonist is so inwardly focused and confused and indecisive. And it runs counter to our traditional conception of like a narrative protagonist who is a character who is constantly taking action and moving the plot forward. And so I could see people bouncing off of this work for the same reason they would bounce off of that because they would get, they would be just confused as to why the character seems so confused. Oh, that makes that sense. sense. Yeah, that does. But we're here to help. Sure. We're here to help you get through this difficult mm-hmm. time of learning about yourself and mm-hmm. reading these novels. So let's get started. Why don't you tell us like the basic Basical. Basical? Yeah. The basic. The jellical? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a difference. That's a whole different thing. That's difficult in a different way, which is that nothing is happening and it's very very strange. Uh, Yeah, so Beneath the Wheel is, it's a, what's the term? It's a Bildungsroman? Yes. Is that how you're supposed to say it? It's a coming of age story? Sort of. I don't, I think it kind of bucks the convention of a coming of age story and that it it's kind of a story about how, in some cases, it is impossible to come to age. But it is a story about a gifted young student named Hans, who comes from a small village in Germany, who is 
sort of earmarked early on as a an academic prodigy. This book was at some point published on, in America, or in the West at least, or not the West, in English-speaking regions as The Prodigy, oh, which really? is a much worse title, I think. And he, the beginning of the book is all about him studying for and preparing for this examination to get into the seminary. It's like a state-run seminary, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So if he get if he passes this this is why the expectations are so high. If he passes these tests and he gets accepted into this university, this seminary, he'll have a free education, which is very appealing to this sort of small town who's like claim to fame is they don't have they're like what they have like a brewery or yeah basically i mean they're they make apple cider yeah like there's even a part very early on where he's nervous about failing the test and he broaches the idea to his father of attending a you know a private academy that they would have to pay for if he doesn't pass and it's completely completely left off as like an impossibility and then he passes the examination he, in fact, places second overall, is sent to the seminary, to the academy, and he studies there, and he's awkward, and doesn't have any friends for a while, until he sort of almost accidentally befriends this moody, rebellious kid named Helner. Do you remember what his first name is? Herman. Herman. Helner. Everybody's sort of identified by their, their last name. That's a, that is it's a like, very boarding school thing. Yeah, I was going to say that's a very British way of doing things. And he, at one point, Helner gets in a physical confrontation with another student, and Hans does not back him up, and their friendship falls apart because of Hans' cowardice. And then later on, they reconnect. But then Helner's rebelliousness reaches a peak when he just runs away from the school for a while. And upon his return is expelled. All, all the while, Hans's academic standing is sliding farther and farther down because of his friendship with Helner. And then once Helner is expelled, Hans's uh, mental state just declines to a point where his academic career becomes untenable and he is expelled. But it's presented as like, oh, he has a, they've decided he has a nervous disorder and he's being sent on sabbatical. Maybe one day he'll come back. But he doesn't. Eventually he, he takes a job as an apprentice at a locksmith shop. And while carousing with the other locksmiths, apprentices, and journeymen, he gets drunk and wanders off on his own and his body is found floating down the river. And that is the end of the story. But I think meanwhile, the story also deals with a couple things that Hans is personally dealing with. One is his inability to connect to his peers. There's mm-hmm. a part in there where he fails to make a love connection. Mm-hmm. He he can't seem to connect to his coworkers. He has this sort of tenuous kind of confrontational relationship with his father his mother is, has passed away yeah. before the novel starts. His mother's passed away. His dad is like... I don't think we're ever told specifically what his job is. He is called a jobber in like the very first line of the novel. I think he's uh, a, a worker of some sort. A physical yeah, worker. Some kind of worker. Uneducated. I think that's why he's so insistent when Hans is identified in the local school as having a high IQ. 
he encourages the headmaster in the little school that he goes to, the town school, and also the priest and the other men in the town who want to sort of educate Han so that he can pass the test and get into the seminary. Yeah, and his dad is very, like, emotionally stunted. He, he does not seem... He doesn't do a lot of work to connect with Hans. I think the most telling thing about their relationship is there's a sequence where his father is dropping Hans off at the seminary and he's like, he doesn't know what to say. He gives him like this perf- weird perfunctory speech that makes somebody an onlooker laugh. And he's mostly just uncomfortable and bored and wants to get out of there. I also think that he doesn't really, other than his desire to give his son a better life, he doesn't actually give his son a better life. His, he puts him in a position where his son has to give himself a better life. Yeah. And that's part of the pressure that he deals with. But when all the kids are, or the young men are arriving at school, they're all sons of like tradesmen. They're in a higher economic status than Hans and his mm. father. There's um, students that are affluent and they have, I mean, it's a really weird random part where there's a like a description of like someone brings a giant ham, someone yeah. brings a bushel of apples. They become friends. The kid who brings all the apples becomes friends with the kid who brought the ham just because they are like, we can have ham and apples together. Like, there's a lot of, like, very, I think, nicely studied details about, like, being a a, a young boy specifically, but just being a kid in school. And he talks about, like, this sort of random happenstance of, like, friendships and how a lot of, like, what end up being relatively strong friendships do Start from, like, a strangely transactional uh, beginning point. Like, the whole thing where it's like, yeah, well, you got the apples and you got the ham. And then they're friends for the rest of their school career. But I think this is the beginning of when you start to see that Hans is feeling the pressure emotionally and even physically of the expectations of the societal norms. And since he hasn't ever been exposed to those societal norms because he was raised in a small town Mm. and he doesn't have the benefit of this sort of traditional middle-class upbringing that his fellow students has, he doesn't understand how to do things. And it's I guess you see that with the father. The father doesn't know what to do when he's dropping his son off Mm. at school because he himself never went to the seminary or had higher education. And then once... Hans is there. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to make a friend. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know how to deal with the pressure of this increasing. He knows about Latin and Hebrew and all of the scholarly things that he learned from the people in the town, but he doesn't know how to like manage the stress of school, manage the stress of overwork. And then he encounters these teachers that are bullying them because that is the way that they react to students, which is another experience that he doesn't know because he was taught by the local pastor who gave him then this sort of extracurricular education about religion. So he doesn't and know the principal of the school. Yeah. So he doesn't know about like being berated and bullied and how that sort of part of the structure, the society, the sort of roles that the headmaster plays in a school system. Well, by the time he gets to the academy, he's like, he's a kid, 
But he, like I said, he was earmarked early on to be a prodigy, so he hasn't really done anything except studying. And we get, like, hints here and there that his early childhood, he, you know, fished and made a hutch for rabbits and had friends, and then all that stuff got pushed to the wayside as they were prepping him to take the examination to get into the academy. So by the time he arrives there, he's a kid who has not had a friend or done anything like played a game for almost his entire life now like it's been you guy assume he's like what he's like 13 when he gets yeah into i the think academy. he is like maybe even younger than that like a high school age and then he but he has presumably spent like half of his life just studying for that one test so he doesn't know what to do and a like recurring theme in the book is that he sees people doing people stuff you know hanging out telling stories being friends carousing kissing up to authority figures and he doesn't know how to do that stuff because he wasn't taught how to do it and it doesn't come naturally to him and he doesn't know how to fake it and he gets distressed and he turns inward and that just happens over and over again until he is turned completely inward and has fallen beneath the wheel and i think what's what when hesse is talking about the pairing up and there's a part there's a very very sad part which is one of the sad and sort of disturbing parts of the book is he talks about all of the friends pairing up and becoming like best friends and how having a best friend is important and Hans does have a best friend in Herman but instead of being that best friend that sort of guides him into like learning how to manage himself in this new society Herman is sort of a free thinker. He's sort of like a provocateur. He does things. He doesn't want to work really hard. He only wants to work as much as he can to get something done. He doesn't want to follow the rules that the headmaster has. Mm-hmm. He he does sort of like all of these like pranks and he's kind of belligerent to the teacher. So he's kind of like bucking the system and that confuses Hans. And that's why Hans doesn't support him when he gets caught. But the saddest part about the sort of bonding and the friendships that they're supposed to be making is there's one student, and his name is like Hindinger. Yeah. Who, he's so pathetic and everyone makes fun of him because he's not able to make a friend. So even though Hans is like messed up and has like these awkward social problems, he can still make a friend. So he's not as bad as this friend. And then there's a really sad part in the book where Hindinger is missing and everyone in the school finally is aware that there's this boy who has no friends Mm -hmm. and they finally pay attention to him because he's missing. And then when they find him, he, I don't know if it's a, is it a suicide? So the way it's presented is the other boys go out to play on the frozen lake and he goes to watch them, but doesn't play with them because he does not have any friends. And he's like, he's also, I think mentions being like sort of sickly. Mm-hmm. And he, in foreshadowing of what happens to Hans, he wanders off on his own and ends up accidentally walking onto a a pond that is not fully frozen and he falls through the ice. Right. And then when I mean, they find him, they all sort of become introspective and think about what their friendships mean to themselves. And a lot of the other students either commit or become stronger in their friendship. But for Hans and Herman, this sort of that's sort of one of the breaks that separates their friendship. Well, no. So 
there's another kid whose name I cannot remember. It's like Lucius or something like that. Who's a real, a grind, as they're called. He's a real nerd. Um, who's very good at academics. And he decide, he's also like a penny pinching, like, kind of like a con man. Like, he like uses other people's towels so he gets an extra towel. And he comes up with this plan where he's going to take full advantage of the school by taking free violin lessons, even though he has no capacity for music. Some of this book is like funny, like it's like a funny, like, boarding school comedy and then a lot of it is like a bleak story about social alienation but that kid's like really bad at the violin but insists on playing it constantly to get his money's worth and at one point he's monopolizing the music practice room and like the only things that Helner is really good at or not really the only things he's good at but the things that he likes are writing poetry and playing music and also being mean to people (laughs) <laughs> um and he wants to use the music room but the other kid is monopolizing it and they get into a fight and then Helner is disciplined and Hans doesn't stand up for him and that breaks the friendship then Hindegger dies and while everyone is looking for him a bunch of the students catch colds and are sent to the infirmary and Hans reconnects with Helner while he's in the infirmary. So that's actually the point where their friendship does become stronger. But I think the tragic thing about their friendship is, because of Helner's nature, he drags Hans further and further away from the mainstream society of the academy. So that when Helner is expelled, Hans is completely alone. More alone than he was when he didn't have any friends. Because now he's an outcast. Well, yeah, because all of the other students have matched up with their friends. Yeah. And well, and also, like, Helner helped run, like, a satirical newspaper where he roasted everybody in the school and stuff. And Hans is associated with him. And when Helner plays hooky and gets expelled, all the teachers start looking down further on Hans as being like, oh, did you know about this? Why didn't you run away with your friend? And because of his association, he gets pushed farther away than he was before, which is why I think his, you know, academic standing and his mental state begin to decline so steeply after his friend is expelled. I also think, too, at this time, he is having all of these problems and he looks to the adults and the adult, there's like a very sad scene where he's being mocked by one of the mm-hmm. professors during his, like during a class when he's asked a question and he's very upset and he's used to sort of these academic and adult role models helping him. He really can't process that they're not willing to help him anymore. Even though they're professors in a school and their job is to help people, they're really kind of like awful like adults and he can't model any behavior from them because they're really mean and sort of unhelping and Mm. uncaring. Yeah. I mean, he counters this thing where he's having this, he's in this horrible like situation and no one is even willing to acknowledge. Nobody wants to help him. The most help that he gets is that he goes to a doctor who gives him drops and tells him he has a nervous disorder, but that doesn't mean anything and that doesn't help him in any way. Well, there's also a part where before Herman runs away from school and gets expelled, where the doctor tells him he needs to relax and he needs to take these sort of walking constitutionals. And the headmaster says, you have to go by yourself. 
Or yeah, well, he can't. Herman can't come with you. Yeah. Because they're not supposed to be fun. They're supposed to be a treatment. Yeah, he has. And the other thing is, he has, he has headaches like throughout the. Hans has headaches throughout the story. But so, like, what I think is going on here is like we we have this you know capitalist society. You have a figure like Hans's dad, who's presented as this like cog in the machine, who like functions perfectly as a tool of advancement for the capitalist society, but has no sort of real internal life. Or emotional fulfillment. And then Hans is offered via the Academy a means to escape that fate. But what he finds out is that's not what's going on. Because why would this society offer you a way out like that? And we see with someone like Herman who is trying actively to escape it. How like antagonistic the society is towards him. And so what the seminary is, is it's like, they identify early on these people who are like too smart or too sensitive or whatever to fit neatly into capitalist society. And they send them off to the school. And it's really not like how you would imagine school from like a, an American perspective where it's designed to like hammer them into the shape where they will be useful. It's more there to like silo them off and mold them into this position where they will be non-threatening to the greater capitalist order and will help kind of continue this cycle of like pushing off these brains that might be challenging otherwise and turning them into you know academics and pastors and stuff who will help sort of nudge other people back into position and i think part of the problem with that hans faces is he rapidly realizes that like he doesn't fit into the normal society and he doesn't fit into this special rarefied academic society and so there is nowhere for him to go and no one is like they they can't offer him a place to go because it doesn't exist you know under the current system yeah and i think that kind of like one of the themes that i identified in this novel is this sort of academic pressure slash adult expectations where Hans is given this sort of life where his childhood is taken away from him and he is groomed for academic success, Mm -hmm. but he's not given this sort of coping skills that he needs to succeed in that academic world, which is what happens when he gets to the school. And then also I think that there's this sort of, I don't know if it's a German expectation or it's just put in in this novel, but there's this expectation that Hans is supposed to feel grateful for this extra education that he's given. Mm-hmm. And then you see that in the beginning where he's his sole hobby that brings him joy, which is fishing, is taken away from him because it takes time away from all of these lessons that these learned men are willing to give him. Mm. And Hans's father feels that he should be appreciative of the extra time that the pastor and headmaster, the principal, whoever is giving him. So he should be grateful and he should take what's given to him and he should put up with what comes with it. So when he goes to school and he's supposed to be learning and there's this sort of abusive subcomponent of where the headmaster and the teaching masters 
are really mean and bullying to the students, the students are supposed to take it. And that's what Herman points out to him. It's like, mm-hmm. why would you put up with this and work so hard and get treated this way and you can do it and work yourself to death or you can do the little that you can to get by? Why wouldn't you do that? Because it's emotionally a safer option for you. But Hans doesn't understand that. He wants to work as hard as he can mm-hmm. because he has this idea if he works as hard as he can, the teachers won't be so mean to him, even though Harmon has said to him, that's how they treat you. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that you see the trap where it's like, I think the idea is with a student like Herman, where it's like, you have this guy that's like not going to fit into the capitalist society. And it's like, you send him to the school and berate him until he breaks. And then you can go, well, then once later on, if someone goes, why didn't you do anything for this person? You can go, I tried. And he's a failure now. Right. You get to make him into a failure, which then excuses you from ever having to do anything to help him. And that's what happens to Hans, too. And it's also like this thing where it's like then those failures become a way, uh, a stick with which to beat the other kids into place where it's like, well, look, do you want to be a failure or do you want to put your fucking nose to the grindstone and shut the fuck up and and translate Homer? And that's like the thing that happens. You know, that's like what's happening with Hans initially. And then he gets pulled aside by Herman. I also want to talk about the fishing. I think the fishing is brilliant. So it's like there's this in a lesser work. I think you would read it and you would come to the end and you would have this. You would go, well, why didn't he just become a fisherman? If fishing makes him happy and he's good at it, why doesn't he just become a fisherman? But Hesse goes out of his way to explain in detail the method in which Hans fishes. And it's not the kind of fishing you can do for a living in a capitalist society. It's inefficient. It's highly personalized. And it uses archaic methods. He fishes without a fishing line. It's all about the feel. It's this very, you know, contemplative, meditative style of fishing. To the outside observer, it's lazy. And so it's like... If Hans just did go to become a fisherman, he would be just as unhappy because it w- they would not let him fish in the way that makes him happy anyway. And then it's uh, when he passes the examination early on, he has this whole summer to himself. And he's like, I'm going to go fishing. And he goes fishing. And then, like, this, like, sinister cloud of expectations rolls in. And one by one, the pastor and the principal show up and convince him to do extra studying until he has no time to go fishing. Well, I think it's kind of like that's the equivalent of like this current like climate of this like gig economy mm-hmm. where it's like, well, you like to paint. Why don't you become like a professional painter? And then you can sell your work and make money yeah. and you can have a job. Or you like to knit. Why don't you become an get an Etsy store where like the thing that you enjoy that brings you peace and separates you from your work life and the pressures of living everyday life that's sort of your hobby that makes you feel good, you should immediately monetize that and it becomes the career. Yeah. But I think it's like, I think that in on the surface it looks like all of these people who want Hans to be a successful seminarian, they, they have his interest at heart. But what I think what's really going on is this sort of abuse of power. Mm-hmm. where these adults are using Hans to sort of manifest this sort of unreachable goal in their own lives. 
you know, they want him to go to the seminary and they want him to be successful. So they're grooming him, but no one looks, and this is like, this is like, here's like my soapbox and I jump right on it. This is one of the problems that I had with this sort of concept of the gifted program. And yeah. it's like, you, Nate was like, I was, I'm dreading when we get to the point where we talk about the gifted program. But I think that's what this is because you see this where these sort of adults have a child that's gifted and in their minds, gifted means academic success and financial success mm-hmm. because I got a smart kid. I groom him to be a really smart guy. He becomes a doctor, blank, blank, blank. He's rich and happy for the rest of his life. But it's more complicated than that because along with this gifted program comes this sort of emotional growth that has to happen, which doesn't happen for Hans. Yes, Hans is very smart. He's very intellectual. He understands Hebrew, understands Greek, but he doesn't have the skills that he needs to be happy in his own life. And I think that the adults who are pushing him, they don't take the time to look and say like, okay, I'm not raising a computer. I'm raising a human child. And this child has gone off to school and he's unhappy. Mm -hmm. And none of them say that. They just sort of say like, what happened, Hans? How'd you fuck this up? We gave you like this perfect opportunity. Yeah, there's a part that like, in a lot of this book, like towards the end, it got very hard for me to read. Because I won't go into any specifics here, but people know me who listen to this podcast, who know me in real life, and I'm sure there are other people who don't. Stuff has happened in my life that is, like I said, it's very, very, very similar to some of the stuff that happens to Hans in this book. And one of the parts that really got me, like, that played directly into my own anxieties is there's a part where he's walking off to his job at the locksmith shop and he's wearing his locksmith uniform and people are making fun of him in the street. Being like, haha, like academ- a- academy locksmith is what they call them. Mm-hmm. And it, or academy mechanic or something like that. And it's like, yeah, it's like you go through this horrible situation, like where, you know, the thing that's supposed to be your greatest asset, which is your brain, right? Like when you're in this situation, when you're a gifted kid or you're at the academy or whatever, like betrays you. Your brain betrays you. <laughs> and then you come home and it's like you look like a loser. But I think also... And it's like you get mocked on top of that. Part of the problem with him... Because in essence what happens is he fails out of college. Which is like... You could write that novel for like this age. I I think it's... This is one of those things that's like when we talked about Destroyer and I was like... It's going to be a bummer how relevant this still is years from now. And then it rapidly became insanely relevant. But this is the same way. Like this is... I, like I said, I, I, it reflects my experience. I'm sure it reflects tons of people's experience who are in school right now, except they're doing it from home because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But, but is, like, this is exactly this sort of mentality, this like America dream mentality where your children go to college. Like when I was in high school, I wanted to go to college because I wanted to learn more. But financially, it was not feasible Mm -hmm. for my parents to send me to college yeah so i ended up at the community college and i i still learned and i still had a great experience and i and i felt like it met the needs that i wanted which was to go to school to learn and to learn about things like philosophy and aesthetics 
and literature, things that I did not get exposed to in a public mm. high school. But when you were born, it was this kind of thing, like immediately, like at the hospital, you give this big packet of information. Yeah. And one of the things they give you is this application to sign up for like a Roth IRA so that you can immediately start sending your kids to college. And it's like this middle class expectation of like your kids are going to college. And so then you have this sort of thing where all these kids have this idea that they're going to college. A lot of them don't want to go to college. A lot of them are not prepared or emotionally ready to go to college. But then we still put them through college, put them to college and they fail. And then we're kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe you failed. Now you have to get like a job. Well, I think like uh, the thing that's really of like that I really, really dig about this book is it is a really thorough depiction of the fact that living under capitalism is basically a no-win scenario i remember when i was in high school we had to read some young adult novel i cannot remember the name of it it was called like speak or something like that like one of those type of titles and the woman who wrote it came in to give us a talk and she said this thing that sounded completely insane to me at the time which she was like don't feel like you have to go to college like he's like you don't need to college isn't for everybody and it's like, that's true, probably, yes. But it's like, what else do you do? Like, it's like, you go to college, or what? You gotta get a job. Like, there's no universal basic income. Like, you gotta go get a job. And then that monopolizes all of your time. And then you just do the job. But it's like, you either, like, go to college to try and figure out what you want to do. And you're seen as someone wasting your time because you're not immediately working towards like a degree that's going to make you six figures or you don't go to college and you work at the fucking wherever the, the dollar store. And it takes up your whole fucking day and you get home and you're too tired to figure out what you want to actually do. And I, I think like this, the beneath the wheel really gets at that. Like, it's like, in both those situations, you either keep moving or you end up under the wheel. And it's like, I, I think it's an extreme luxury for someone to not go to college, but still be able to do like the self exploration to figure out like what they actually want to do and what's going to make them happy. And it's an even bigger luxury to be able to do the thing that makes you happy at all. Well, that's like we talked about this quite a bit. This idea that like there's no jobs. For like, th for people who are like, there's no job of being a philosopher. Yeah. There's no job of being a poet. There's no job of being like, just a painter. You either you, you do those things and you do them till you're successful, and then you make that job. I mean, essentially, and, the, those jobs that do exist, like a painter in under capitalism, is not a painter. They are a salesman who makes the things that they sell. Exactly. And it's like when you're a philosopher under capitalism, what your actual job is, is to teach other people to be philosophers so they can teach other people to be philosophers to, again, like with the simmering, act as this silo to push off these people who are not useful to the capitalist society and to instead do this other thing where they're still making money and generating capital in the academic system. Well, I think that's true. And I think that... I mean, Hans goes, this is what one of the problems I had with the people who, why I thought that they were sort of abusing and taking advantage of mm -hmm. Hans, is they groomed him to go to the seminary, and he still has the same brain that he had when he went into the seminary, but mm. he has failed in this sort of 
machine of academic education. And he comes back to the town, and all of the men who had helped him get to the seminary... They don't give a shit about it. Yeah. So it's not like, okay, like, we know that Hans is very bright, and we know that he's intellectual, but he can't deal in a high-pressure setting of academic, higher academics. Why don't we hire him at our school? Yeah. Why is it like you either go to the seminary and you're a success, or you come back home and you're a fucking locksmith? There's no middle ground for Hans. Well, he could have been a clerk, but that would have been also been horribly depressed. But yeah, it's, it's like this like awful cycle. Like that's what the beneath the wheel thing is, right? It, it, the the principal says it specifically. It's like you don't want to end up beneath the wheel. Like there's this cycle of like once you start to fail, you become a failure, and they don't want to help you. You're a lost cause. It's not worth helping you because it's better off spending that energy help like. Not even really helping, but helping the person that that is doing better. Like, you become a... Once you start to slip behind, you become a drag. And then you slip further and further behind until you're under the wheel. And there's no getting out from it. Well, I think that's why his father doesn't really know what to do with him. Like, when, his, when he's home from school and he's depressed and he's, like, sort of aimless and and doesn't know what to do his father doesn't help him he sort of is just kind of like Hans have you thought about getting a job yeah I mean I yeah and it's like um but it's not I, I think it's we should point out that it is not just the academic situation that causes Hans to be the way that he is yeah he suffers from other things that make it harder for him to survive in that setting because when he comes home and he meets a woman, he doesn't know how to act. Yeah, he doesn't know how and to act he in any situation. Yeah, and I think that's the problem. It's not like he went to this academic institution and it broke him. He was broken when he got there and it didn't get better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, well, I think broken is, yeah. But it's like, um, it's one of those things, we talked about this when we uh, we read Goodbye, is this called Goodbye My Brother by John Cheever? Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is one of those stories where they spend all this time being like, this strange person, what is what is wrong with them? What What's going on? And it's like, oh, they're depressed. Like, now we understand they're depressed. And this is like one of those stories, but because I think the brilliant thing about it, like, evidence as to why I think this is a, a genuinely great work of literature, is that's true. Like, we can, from a modern perspective, read this story and go, Hodge is suffering from depression, probably among other things. But like, this, like slowing down his this loss of interest in things this like constant tiredness that he has like those are symptoms of depression but you don't go well you don't get frustrated with that you don't go like can't they see he has depression because it's like how would his story be any different in present day life the fact that they that we understand that they're like what's wrong with him like the response would be exactly the same like it's a real i think this book functions as a real indictment of the way that like our society handles mental illness. It's like, we we treat people with depression just as shittily as now as they do in this book. I think also, not only does he definitely have some kind of mental illness that he's dealing with that's not treated in the town, but I think he also suffers from, and this is, I think, the part that even if you never go to college and you never have a mm. situation like Hans, one of the things that you can relate to about Hans is that He's different. Yeah. And his brain works differently and he has different values and he wants different things from his life. And 
the people, the adults in his life treat him like wanting something different is wrong. Yeah. And they condition him to think that when he feels a different way or when things don't work out for him and he's different, that it's his fault because he's different. Yeah. And then this is like another wheel that he deals with because you can't break that mentality because you have no idea that there's any other way of thinking. So when he likes to fish and he's told that he should not like fishing because he should be involved in academic things, then that's hard for him to understand. And when he's told he's not good at academic learning and he needs to get a job, there's really nothing that he's equipped for because he was conditioned his whole life to be a student. And then all these things that he has to process, his fundamental understanding is is that I'm different and that's why they don't work. It's not the system's fault. It's not my father's fault. It's not anybody's fault but myself because I'm wrong and that's bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, that framing that the principal, the headmaster gives him of like, you don't want to slip beneath the wheel is a framing where it is made entirely his fault. He's not getting pushed under the wheel in that analogy. It's that you you let yourself fall under the wheel. And that's like the way it's constantly presented to him. And I think that Herman kind of says to him, what if you just jumped off? Like, what if you didn't end up beneath the wheel, but you Mm -hmm. just sort of jumped off and you let the wheel go by because you don't need it. Like you can think for yourself. You can work for what you want to work for. You can do what you want. Yeah, but it's like, I think it's telling that Herman disappears from the book because it's like, what is that? Like, sure, philosophically, like, yeah, I agree. Get get out of the wheel. Get away from the wheel. Like, it's like fucking in Prometheus when the round spaceship is falling and they're just running in a straight line away from it. It's like, just go to the left. But it's like, in this situation, it's like, what do you do once you're on the left? Like, you don't, there, you, how do you make money? How do you get food? How, who, like, that's the other thing, right? Like, who teaches you how to function yeah. when you're different. And it's like, Hans's problem is that he's, like, isolated, right? And it's like, he could go walk off from capitalist society and live in isolation. And it's like, well, he would still be isolated. It's the same fucking problem. That's not a solution. It's just a reframing of the problem. And, like, that's the situation we get here. It's like, you either hammer yourself, you either file yourself into a shape to fit in this system... Or you reject the system entirely and live a life of solitude and get rejected by the system in turn, which is what happens to Herman, who's then sent away and then is functionally dead for the rest of the novel. Hans mourns him in the way that he mourns a dead person. He has dreams about him after that. Let's talk about talk about the scene where Hans goes to the cider making. Uh, yeah, so there's this period between... Him getting expelled and him getting the job as a locksmith, where he's just sort of hanging around in a malaise, and the apple harvest happens and people start making cider. And Hans is like, friend slash sort of mentor, the shoemaker, Master Flag, is like, making cider. He set up a cider press in his shop and he's making cider. And Hans goes to make cider with him and he's like watching all of these people like be happy and have a good time and drink cider. And he's like totally alienated from this. He doesn't understand how to do what they're doing and feel the things they're feeling. And then Flag's niece, I think, 
this woman, this, you know, young woman, Emma, shows up and is, like, flirting with Hans the whole time. And Hans is, like, into her. But the way that uh, his, he's described is, like, he's clearly, like, into her and he's, like, love-struck. But, like, instead of being this, like, elated, like, happy, ecstatic feeling... He just gets, like, nervous and tired and doesn't know what to say. (laughs) And it's like, I guess this is love? Is this what love is like? And the other thing is he keeps thinking about early on, there's a part where he and Helner are, like, in a closet. And their faces are really close together and Helner kisses him. And then later on, Helner mentions that he has, like, a sweetheart back home. And Hans comes really hung up on this and obsesses over this sweetheart that Helner supposedly has and tries to get him to tell him about it, but it never happens. And so the whole time he's like with Emma, he he doesn't do anything to advance the relationship and eventually she just goes home. And then the whole time, every time they're together, he gets tired and weird and he thinks about his old friend from boarding school that he kissed in a closet. But then also he kind of goes to like the extreme, like he like there's a scene where she's washing the dishes and he's like in her garden watching yeah. her. But he doesn't because he's doing that because he doesn't know what to do. Like he doesn't understand. Like there's a process where it's like this is how you court someone. And it's like somehow everyone else knows this but I don't. Like that's a feeling that I have constantly. Is it feels like everybody else got born and did a tutorial level. That showed them how to use the menus and which button you push to have a normal interaction with a person. And I didn't get that. And, like, I accidentally pushed start and skipped the tutorial. And now I don't know what the fuck I'm doing ever in any situation. And that's what Hans is like. That's totally on brand for you, though. Yeah. I mean, the thing thing that's helped me the most (laughs) to get past that is the thing Hans ever learns to do, which he kind of can't because... His society is as bad as ours is. His is much more repressive than ours is. Is to I just say that I don't know, or just go, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. But I think <laughs> for Hans, he doesn't have the. That's not an option. No, he can't do that. Well, that's the other thing. It's like there's this expectation, which is the thing that I struggled with when I was younger. It's like you're supposed to be smart, so don't ever reveal that you don't know things because, like, what are you then? If you're not the smart guy, what the fuck are you? And it's like, you gotta get past that. Like, and it's like Hans never gets past that. But I think it's telling that it's like his whole life is like that because the cider pressing is a yearly event. Mm-hmm. So even before he showed academic promise, he should have been exposed to the social business of yeah. that. But his father is also sort of isolated because his father doesn't like press his own he does but it's like he, he invites people over and it's not really like even a thing like it doesn't have the like ceremony around it that the other people do well then also he does it later on after everyone in the town is done yeah like he doesn't go to the like communal pressing so i think it's overwhelming to hans when he to when he shows up and there's his old school friends and then also i think he has a problem with the fact that some of his school friends are happy now in yeah. their lives, and he is not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's the thing. He comes back from the seminary, and, like, everyone has moved on. He hasn't interacted with these people forever. He's, like, basically a stranger, and all anyone knows about him is this guy went to the academy, and he flunked out, and that becomes a whole of his identity in the town at that point. 
Only the only person that's like really helps him at all is his friend August, who have he who works at the locksmith shop with him. But Hans all like only ends up working like a day, like a day at the locksmith shop. Well, that's it. And I think also like August is kind of he is like the one of the positive people that helps Hans. Yeah, because he says like. You really want to be a locksmith? And Hans is like, well, I don't really know what else to do. And he's like, well, it'll be fine. Yeah. You'll you'll be fine. And then he gets there and he's literally, his job is literally to create wheels that are yeah. just going to like. And he's miserable. And he gets tired. Yes, like, he gets very tired. Like immediately. he. But they do this. It's so good. The description of him working at the locksmith shop is so good because he's describing it and it feels like he's talking about a whole day. That's grueling. <laughs> and then he goes, and then we had lunch. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And I've had that experience. Like, you go and you get a job and it sucks ass. And you, it's like, I can't function. These people are just doing it and I'm miserable and I want to fucking put my head in the sewer. And and you met, you meet people who are doing the job for like 20 years. I worked at a movie theater. And I fucking hated it. It sucked. Uh, you got free movies, and I never had any time to see the free movies you got, so I functionally didn't have it. And I was constantly getting berated. And there was a dude who worked at the movie theater who I remember working there when I was too young to get into R-rated movies, and he would stop me from seeing R-rated movies. And he was still there. And one day we were working together, and it was like so – it felt so dark. I was like, what is this? Did How you, are you doing this? Did you feel like you were in the Jim Jarmusch Mimi? But it's like, yeah, like I totally get that. It's like, but August is like an example of like, August is fine. August is working at the locksmith shop and he's excited to, you know, get his wages and go drinking with his homies. And Hans doesn't, it doesn't work for him. But then, so let's talk about the end of the book, which is very disturbing in a lot of ways yeah, so we get this long description of the uh the apprentices and a couple of the jurymen going over to another town to go drinking and he talks about like the way that these guys tell stories and egg each other on and like you know box back and forth with like roasts and stuff and then like hans gets drunk and he has this, like, moment where I, he just, like, dissociates. Where it's just, like, he talks about, like, these all the people around him just sort of melt into this, like, miasma. And he can't pay attention to what they're saying anymore. And he feels nauseous. And Oz, he just has to leave. And he, he's, like, they're, like, stay. Have, like, some schnapps. That'll wake you up. And he, like, has the, sh- he's, like, the, the description is all of a sudden a cup was in his hand. Like, it's, like, he's, like, lost, like, agency because he's so, like, assumed in this, like, social... It's not even, like, a social anxiety. But it's this, like, just this, like, sudden feeling of, like, emptiness. And of, like, being out of place and unreal. And then he wanders off. And he almost falls asleep in a meadow. Except he's too anxious. About, like, how am I going to get home? What am I going to do? Where am I? So he doesn't fall asleep. And he gets up and keeps walking. And then the story just cuts to, like... A, Hans's dad, who's mad at him for being late to get home and is, like, calling him, like, a sneak and ungrateful. 
And then eventually he goes to bed and wakes up the next day and they found Hans's body. Or, like, the narrator's like, and meanwhile Hans's body is, like, floating down the river and the water is playing with his hair and lapping up against his bloodless lips. And he never, he never says, like, we were given no... Like, the narrator is like, what could have happened with Hans? Did he just fall in or whatever? And the specter of the whole thing is, like, that it was suicide. But it's never confirmed the 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 manner of Hans' death. We go right from him getting up from not falling asleep in the meadow to he's dead in the river. Yeah, and it's kind of like a really sad sort of ending where you're like, is this the end of, like... His childhood, the innocence of being like a young child, and he has to deal with these adult feelings now. Are you dealing with this sort of death of like hope because he doesn't know what to do with his life? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not hard to imagine it as a suicide because it's like he goes to the academy and that's not the place for him. He fails out and ends up back home and it's miserable and he has no friends. His childhood is dead. The river is empty. No one's in the river. No one fishes at the river. It's like a, a detail we're given specifically. And then he goes and he gets this job at the locksmith shop, which is supposed to be his future. Like, the idea is, like, that first day is the first day of many days that are going to be identical. And it's an awful time for him. And then he goes to do the one thing that's supposed to be the the release valve. Like, oh, you're, you're carousing, TGIF, and he's miserable there, too. But I think he realizes that the locksmith is almost like... It's almost like the seminary. He has a boss that is mean to him and he has these expectations and the work is literally grinding him down and the people in the locksmith are just like the other students in the yeah. seminary. They're, they're friends. They have friends. They have cliques. They have mm-hmm. this sort of... They're accepting and they're happy and they're like... And what they're doing, and Hans can't relate to that. Yeah. Well, there's this, like, one part, the last, like, kind of, like, funny part of the book, where they're telling stories, and Hans is, like, he's, I mean, he's, like, an alien. He has this part where he's, like, wow, everybody must be f- friends with an endurance drinker and a, and eater, because there's, everyone has a fucking story about how much some dude ate and drank. <laughs> and it's, like, yeah, okay, cool. Um... But yeah, I, I think like we didn't, I've been mean, wanting to talk about this for a little bit where it's like the work at the, at the locksmith shop is exactly like the work at the school. Like the whole time he's at, at this academy, he's working on, they're reading Homer and they're reading the Bible and they're translating Greek and they're translating Hebrew and it's very mechanical. And there's this recurring part in the book where like, it's art, right? Like, it's the Bible or whatever, but it's it's writing, it's art, it's a story. But Homer, it's like literally poetry. And there are parts where the art moves Hans in like a real and genuine way. And like he, he, he gets scared by it. And he thinks it's like wrong. And he keeps it a secret. Like he's ashamed to tell people when the art that he's reading moves him because he's supposed to be interacting with it in this purely rote and mechanical way. Well, I think you see that too, this sort of idea. There's a part where, of all people, the, like, shoemaker Mm. warns Hans not to, like, spend too much time with the pastor because the pastor has these highfalutin ideas about, like, 
literature and beauty and the sort of less kind of ritualized version of the Bible that they're all used to. And they kind of think that he's kind of like a, like, um, a heretic because he has this sort of ideas about like the beauty and the words that are in the Bible. And he doesn't want him. He makes him like, say like, if the pastor gets too flowery with his description of the Bible, will you come and tell us so we can keep an eye on him? Yeah. Well, also I think the main problem that, flag the shoemaker has with the pastor is that the pastor does not believe in the divine authorship of the bible and like wants to talk about the different like translators and different communities that wrote it which is honestly the most interesting thing about the bible i i think that sounds really cool but whatever uh but yeah it's like yeah the he's constantly interacting with art but in like the least like emotional and artistic way possible and then he has to interact with you, and then he goes to interact with machinery, and it's like functionally the same as the way he was reading fucking poetry before. I think what's interesting about this book is this that the actual, I mean, while there's no mention of like physical wheels because it's very subtle. Well, there's a water wheel, and then there's the cogs. Yes. But I mean, it's like the whole concept that. This sort of idea that Hesse is putting out about this wheel and how the wheel means different things to different people mm-hmm. and what it means, like, what what it means to be beneath the wheel is mm-hmm. sort of different. Like, for, like, Herman, it's like being beneath the wheel is like having this burden on his back of this academic expectations and to the headmaster it means like you've fallen behind your failure and then like to to Hans the wheel is this sort of expectation that he can't get away from where he can't find any Mm -hmm. happiness and like there's people like his father and the shoemaker who like think like being beneath the wheel means like you're an important part of this machine this sort of capitalist machine that's grinding along Mm. and you're producing something that has value and that's the same thing with like Hans when he's at the cider mill and he's like using the press like even just using the press is like exhausting to him mm-hmm. and like he like that's like a positive thing that like a machine that they're contributing to this like social importance of making cider and Hans can't see the value of it yeah what do you think the beneath the wheel means it's that like failure state that then excuses the broader society of any sort of responsibility over you like you're beneath the wheel. Go get smooshed up. Like we have other <laughs> more important things to do. We have other people. We, to throw we gave we, we definitely gave you all the chances that you needed, and you fucked them all up. And now you're under the wheel. And like the wheel's got to keep turning. So get flat so the wheel can turn. <laughs> That's how I see it. I like the book. I feel like it's sad, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like emotionally like like. When we read Johnny Get Your Gun and you were like, this is emotionally like wrecking me to read this book. I think this is the same way I feel about Beneath the Wheel. You know. It's for me, it was like almost Johnny. Johnny Got His Gun was hard to read because it was a very frank portrayal of what I think might be the most horrifying scenario the human mind can imagine. And this was hard for me to read because it was a very frank portrayal of 
the most horrible scenarios I had actually been in already. Like, it was like, Johnny Got His Gun was like this horrible anxiety of the future of like, what can happen to a person? Whereas like, this was like, just reminding me of anxieties I had already been through. But I think like we talked about this a while ago and it was very sort of unpopular idea where we talked about like required reading for kids in school. Yeah. And one of the things I talked about was like how adults are always like catcher in the rye is like a depiction of like teenage culture. <laughs> and then teenagers are like, oh, this book is so stupid. Like this is not me. This is not how I relate to things. And then like this whole like emergence of like young adult novels which were really novels that were written for young adults to read and actually relate to mm-hmm. instead of like being like I'm an English professor and I think Catcher in the Rye is the perfect description of the angst that high school students go and they were kind of like no it, it feels more like the Hunger Games than it feels like yeah. Holden Caulfield on that fucking merry-go-round with that stupid hat on <laughs> I feel like the catch on the rise. Oh, sorry. If you said, like, this is a depiction, because it's hard to say, like, this book written in 1906 by a German philosopher mm. is, like, the perfect example of, like, what it feels like to be a high school student in America in modern times. It's less of a sell than something like Catcher in the Rye, but I feel like what Hans goes through is more relatable to a young adult than what Holden Caulfield goes through. You couldn't assign this in school. Catcher in the Rye is very useful to schools. Because the ending of Catcher in the Rye is Holden going, maybe it's actually cool (laughs) to do what people tell you to do. (laughs) Maybe it's actually pretty fucking sick to be a productive member of society. And this book's the opposite. Where it's like, maybe it's impossible to do what people tell you to do. And maybe it's fucking miserable to be a productive member of society. Like, this book is about how, like, school is bad. Like, you could not assign this book as reading in school. Because it is it is a counterpoint to the entire idea of schooling in a capitalist system. Whereas, Catcher in the Rye, for as much as Holden Caulfield presents himself as a rebel, is ultimately an affirmation of the ideals of the society he lives in. The end of Catcher in the Rye... We are Holden Caulfield essentially admits he was wrong the entire time. Well, I think that's why right now what's happening in society with these protests and this sort of mobilization of a younger generation politically and socially is hard for some people in society to understand. Mm -hmm. Because in their minds, there's this preconditioned idea that like these teenagers are naughty. Yeah. They're going against politics and politicians and who and men who know what's best for them and but it's like how can like a 70 year old man whose career has been in politics his whole entire life how can he relate to someone from gen z and like how this pandemic is affecting them because like the only way that they think about teenagers and young adults is like that naughty holden caulfield who's like not going to get that golden ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's like the thing, right? Where it's like, he's like, ha, you got to reach for the brass ring, even though you might not get it. And, like, that, he gets, like, some sort of measure of peace from that idea. Whereas, like, beneath the wheel, it's like, you you don't get a choice. Like, the carousel keeps fucking going, and you're going to reach for the brass ring and fall down, and everyone's going to step on you. 
Yeah. Like. But, I mean, you're like, you're talking to, like, a generation that literally is being raised in a dystopic society. Yeah. Well. And it's like, not only are you in a dystopic society and society is crumbling, the people who are destroying society are still in charge. They're not even historical figures. They can't even say, like, well, look what this guy did to our society when he's still there doing it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think, like, basically what I'm saying is I feel like it's still, the book is still relevant. Mm -hmm. Hesse's philosophy and the concepts and the themes that he tries to portray in all of his novels are still relevant. And I feel like it kind of makes him a writer that should be sort of re-examined and brought back and his work should be read and conversations started because I think he speaks more for how people feel now and as they did back then, I think he's still relevant. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think he's like focused so internally on like understanding his own experience and humanity that it like becomes universal because it's like people don't like essentially on like an essential innate level a person that is born now is not fundamentally different from a person that is was born in 1850. Like, the society around them is different, but the human nature remains the same. But I think, like, what he does is he sort of, he talks about, like... And the society around them is not that different. It's, like, the other yes. thing that, like, comes up in this. But I think he, like, he writes about this sort of personal journey and it's mm. like he's like a lot of his books especially like Stephen Wolf is this sort of searching for like your authentic true self yeah and it's like how do you take like the philosophy and the religion and the sort of societal norms that you are forced on how do you process those into a personality that you're happy with and I feel like you know he talks like he talks about like non-traditional Things like he and forces people to think about, like when you read like Siddhartha and Siddhartha's kind of the counterpoint to this. Yeah, but it's kind of like, what if you, what if you were spiritual and you were intellectual and Mm. you were thoughtful and mindful, but you did not believe in organized religion? Yeah, like what, like what place could you find for yourself in society if you were different, but you're different? In a way that's not harmful. Like, you're just different because you have different... Like, who doesn't have this feeling? I don't know how to describe this, but who doesn't okay. have this feeling that in your family or you're in your, like, peer group that you might believe something that's a little bit different from everybody else. And instead of being, like, teased because you're more intellectual or different or you don't believe in the religion that you grew up in, that there's a place for you. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, Hesse says that, like, you could, okay, you don't fit in an academic setting, and you don't fit in this setting, you know, but Hans, poor Hans doesn't fit in any setting, but Mm -hmm. what if you could fit and find a place for yourself that was not traditionally an acceptable path? Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Well, Siddhartha is like that, where Siddhartha, you know, the he, it's a story about a person who does sort of find a place to be and where to belong, and, you know, not, I think... Coincidentally, it happens to be outside of capitalist society. Yeah. But it's like, 
this is the story where it's like you, you, society stops you from finding that. I mean, I don't think it is. Also, I don't think it's a coincidence that Beneath the Wheel ends with Hans in the river. And Siddhartha ends with him by the river. Across, crossing the river. Like, like that's like... I think that they they are intentional counterpoints to each other. Well, I also I think where Hesse was writing his... This was his second novel. Yeah. And this sort of evolution from his first novel to his last novel. And this sort of... His own spiritual and intellectual journey from he, when he first started writing to when he wrote his last novel, he started writing poetry because it was a hobby to him because his family had said, like, you need to get a job. And he was like, I like books, so I'm going to get a job in a mm. bookstore. And that was kind of like his path. Yeah. Uh, I do want to, like, again, like I, I talked about before, where I was like, oh, it's like Evangelion. Like, I understand someone being like, well, I just don't get this guy. And, like, that making the work impenetrable for them. I also want to acknowledge the idea that, like, Ehrman Hesse, he was expelled from the seminary. Like, this is, a lot of this story is autobiographical. Um, and I could see someone reading this and being like, all right, dude. Like, oh, you wrote the book where it's like, your life happens, but what if I died? How would you <laughs> feel then, huh? If I was dead? Like, I could see somebody reading this book and thinking it's like that. And I think that's perfectly valid. But I think there's a lot of, like, fucking, there's, there's worth to that story of being like, yeah, what if I died? What's that like? But is that any different from, like, William Faulkner? Yeah. It's like, instead well, of, like... What if you die? Yeah, yeah, Instead of, like, what if I died? Or, like, oh, yeah, you want me to go to war? What if I go to war and get my face shot off? How would you feel about that? Yeah. Like, but it's like, oh, you think I'm a loser because I failed at this seminary? How would you feel if I died? That's what this book's about. <laughs> but it's like, I think that's fine. I think that's good. Um, take what, it's like the Grateful Dead. Like, you know, like, take what you need. You know, whatever you get from it is good. Like, you know. And also, like, you know, we, we, we gave already the sort of warning about, like, the suicide thing. We didn't talk about it, but there's this part before the cider, between the expulsion and the cider, so then before, so thus before the locksmith, where Han spends a long time thinking about killing himself, how he would do it, and planning it meticulously. And I think that, that part's really hard to read, I think. But it gets at this idea that I don't really see dealt with very frankly in a lot of art. Which is that thoughts and even act, we, we understand, and it's always the given line, that like, oh, when people self-harm, it's about control. What I don't think ever, ever really deal with like the way that works. Where it's this thing where like Hans has ended up in this situation where his life is completely out of control. And by constructing, like, he is, by contemplating suicide, he's able to write a hypothetical end to his own story. And he's able to reassert to himself that he has some manner of control over his life, even if it's only in the way in which it's going to end. And that brings him some measure of peace. And there's like part of what keeps him going up through the rest of the story. And I think that sort of thing is really important to talk about in art. Uh, because that's how a lot of people function in society, I think. Like, a lot of people have these incredibly dark thoughts, and it's important to acknowledge that for some people, that is, like, 
they're not dwelling on that stuff because they're like in this horrible pit or that they're posturing or anything. Sometimes they're dwelling on them because that's the only coping mechanism they have available to themselves. Where it's like, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I just think it's important to touch on that before we end the discussion of the book. Definitely. I think like if anything that you take away from his works is that you will read them and you will have it. They're thought provoking and it's like not this sort of cliche about you kind of be like, well, what happened? But they're written in a way that when you reflect on what you've written, it gives you this kind of self-awareness, which is really important for like people's intellectual growth. And even if you read them when you're in high school or you read them when you're in your sixties, you can still get something to improve your life or improve your like, thoughts about your life even if it doesn't physically improve your life yeah i think so do you have anything else to say about uh no i think i got pretty much everything i wanted to say out yeah do you want to talk about anything else before we end this episode well i wanted to give a sort of reading recommendation i'm reading this book it just came out it's called mexican gothic by sylvia moreno garcia Mm -hmm. and she's a mexican writer who lives in canada And this is a really interesting book because it's sort of this, the book is a gothic horror novel, but it's set in the 1950s in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And the protagonist in the story is a young Mexican girl who's right about to go away to college. And she gets caught in this sort of mystery. It's one of those things where it's like, there's a mansion and a kind of like a weird insulary family and there's these strange supernatural things happening. She goes to the house to visit her, her cousin and she gets caught in this sort of weird, I don't want to give too much about like the plot of the story, but it's sort of a very, it's a take on a very traditional gothic horror, like a Daphne du Maure kind of story. It's really well written it's uh it's gripping and i think it's a really well done take on this sort of revival of like gothic horror that's happening right now cool she wrote a book i read last year called the gods of jade and shadow and i don't know if i mentioned this on the podcast but it's the story of two mayan gods a god of death and a god of life who are having this sort of battle and it takes place in jazz like sort of the jazz age in Mexico, which mm. is really interesting. Sounds and cool. I like that a lot. But I don't know if you, her breakout, her debut novel was called Signal to Noise, which is like a supernatural story that has to deal with like music. Mm-hmm. And that sort of was like a cult classic. It became like a very popular book, like amongst like, you know, people who were like intellectual and reading science fiction and horror, that kind of like cross- Mm-hmm. And she kind of like melds like urban fantasy and like sci-fi together, which is really interesting. But cool. it's like, I know we talked about this, this whole like prevalence of like all these books being published that have to deal with like fairy tales and supernatural. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like how this is like a take on that. Like, what if it wasn't about fairy tales, but it was about like Mayan mythology, which I think is very interesting. Nice. So... But I, there is one thing I think you might find interesting. She has a master's degree in literature, and her master's thesis was about eugenics and Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. And she's she's edited two Lovecraft anthologies. But I think what's interesting is that 
this book isn't specifically inspired by Lovecraft, but there are parts of it where you can see sort of the Lovecraftian technique of like horror, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of build up of something horrific without the sort of physical description of something that's horrific, which I think causes a great tension. She uses that really well. And she has taken the sort of concept of like eugenics and like how it can be twisted for, you know, nefarious purposes. And she puts that in this book and I think it's done really well. Nice. Cool. Well, uh, I think we're done then, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.